Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. We are following the reading schedule from the Pynchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 16 through 20 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, my name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. And Will will be joining us a little bit later, hopefully, um, but for the meantime, it'll just be the three of us. So. Um, we do have Will's summary, but we're going to have uh, Kate go ahead and read that for us. In response to Dixon's urging, Mason tells him a story, variously embellished and censored, claiming to be the true account of his meeting with Rebecca. According to this, he had come out hoping to flirt with Susanna Peach, but pretended that instead his focus centered on the positively enormous wheel of cheese brought up to the cistern the churchyard one May day. It was supposedly an octuple Gloucester, though proper accounting notes that being octupled in each dimension compared to a standard double, it's quite the wheel, and breaks its delivery wagon's wheels. Mason has been distracted in fantasy when this happens, and the cheese comes careening down Cooper's Hill, ready to at least partially flatten the youth, when who but his wife-to-be throws it from its path. Uncle Ives interrupts the second-hand account by noting Rebecca's absence from any Gloucester records, but is brushed off shortly. Mason continues, back at the island, in conversation with the specter of his wife. He apologizes for his rackishness in her posthumous era, and she promises no harm done, demonstrating how, while she hasn't been shown the secrets of the universe, time and the affairs of the flesh no longer disturb her spirit. Later, talking with Maskeline, Mason decides he's had enough. Dider, Neville's German acquaintance, is made clearly a ghost to Charles, and the scattered manner by which his temporary partner seems to recall the phantom, perhaps implying another with which he'd been straw. He heads down to the beach, lights a signal fire, and as a dow sweeps in to pick him up, he sees Maskelyne head out again, this time in a new suit. Some unknown speaker tells him to request a ride to a valley near Jamestown to save some fare. The sailor cuts him a deal in Maskelyne's favor. There, approaching the town, Mason finds a museum, operated by the East India Company, dedicated to the ear of Robert Jenkin, which had been the victim of the First Blood in a war not too long prior. The proprietor of the establishment, Nick Morneville, was Florinda's, Mason's former fling, former fiancé, and despite his demotion both professional and romantic, seems to be enjoying the power vested in him via the ear museum. He lightly coerces the astronomer into sharing a wish, a wish with the seemingly still-living orifice, and Mason wishes for the return of his knight in scarlet armor, friend Dixon. Of course, upon hearing of this on his actual return, Jeremiah takes the chance to mock his pal for such whimsy. They proceed to worry themselves over what pur purposes Masculine may have for his self-exile, and discuss tentative plans for the, a reprisal of their partnership in the New World. Returning to England, Engineer Bonk's predictions hold true, as Mason, and presumably the other in turn, is interrogated for Cape intelligence by authorities. He returns to his sons, feeling suitably removed from their immediate lives, and they make the feeling mutual in an unambiguous way. Shortly after his return, the mentor, the astronomer Royal James Bradley, dies. Turned away from the wake, left no inheritance, Charles reminisces on his twin loves, Susanna and Rebecca their love for each other, and the intimacy shared between the couples in the years preceding the wife's death. He cannot seek a claim on the interest grown from his work, having been done in such a spirit. Cast away from the place of grieving to which he feels entitled, 
Mason ends up in the local pub, unhappily eavesdropping on a number discussing his mentor, and in particular, his involvement in the British Calendar Act of 1751, when Whigs stole 11 days from the people. Mason has heard this his whole life. The misapprehension he cannot discern from willful discontent, especially from his father. And so, he leans in with his expertise in Bradley's matters, and dispenses the truth to these commoners. The days, he says, were given to a commission of Asiatic pygmies who lack the fear of temporality endemic to the English. They inhabit a pocket realm, one of crossing into and out of our own, the looping eleven days only remotely synchronous with our time, their cycle and our line haunting one another. In the same way, this was an attempt at immortality by the aging Bradley and Macclesfield, though in what particular way this would help them is left to the imagination. Mason is a bit nonplussed at the acceptance of this explanation, but buys the next round. He returns home to his sons, sisters, and brother-in-law to find himself being courted by a local middle-class suitor who seems quite close with his children already. The news of the possible contract in America predictably upsets everyone, each for their own reasons, where the boys demanding he remain and find other work in Britain. He cannot meet their demands. The pain of it all is exacerbated by reminders of the unconditionality of love the boys have for their father, held captive from their attention by the king's missions. It's made even more bitter when he realizes his own father has been paying for their room and board, on contract, to be apprenticed at the mill. Charles Sr.'s revenge for the younger's flight from the secret yeasted arts. We are shown a happier portrait of the pair in the junior's youth, still working at the bakery, learning his father's belief in the convergence of the nature of bread and the soul, the grand transcendent unity of the mill and the world. All our Mason can feel is a deep revulsion, a terror at the vacuous capacity even for the spirit of Christ. The senior wishes he could broach the immediate subject, the reluctance between a father and son to speak freely of their love for one another, for fear of the certain rejection of such explicit terms. He cannot muster the words. This, I, I felt these these five chapters were, um, I, I really enjoyed them. They were very heavy emotionally. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. know if y'all had the same impression, but yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, character building for Mason, specifically kind of getting a lot of his um, uh, character development and, and kind of understanding him as a person and how his relationships have shaped him as a person. How did y'all feel about these chapters? I'm pretty much right in line with you where, you know, as far as like moving the plot forward, there's not much going on there. I think that really the plot sort of takes off more so when you get to the second section of the book in America. But there is a lot of, to your your point, a lot of character work that's being done in these earlier chapters and in this section of chapters in particular. You get a really good indication of not just how about Rebecca now, but how he felt then, and the you get a better sketch of what their relationship actually looked like and and why his his love for her is so deep. You also continue to get the evolution in him sort of feeling more comfortable with Dixon and kind of taking this new companionship on him on himself to to kind of fill in the gap there when he wishes for for his safe return back to the island. And he's in the museum. And then, of course, you have the entirety of, of the sections involving his kids, which are just... It, it's hard to, to read, especially mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if you have kids or if you've, if you've been in a family with a lot of kids or, or one 
with an absent parent where you know what that is like to wish that your your father or your mother was home and they're just not and they seem to a child anyway almost unwilling to 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 be there so it, it, it i have the same feeling that you do really where it's it's a very emotionally heavy set of chapters but pinchon is really using it for an excellent purpose of of giving us a better impression of who these characters are he's not shying away from the fact that mason and dixon are flawed people you know they, they may be the protagonists but they're not perfect individuals and this is a good example of where we see how you know mason sort of fails his family and and has failings within himself i agree that this these chapters especially the parts with the the feature of mason's kids uh were i don't kind of hard to read uh definitely super emotional you know the fact that mason is is scared of his kids uh, it was kind of hard to kind of deal with, I think, in some ways. Um, one thing that strikes me about these chapters is it does kind of, these chapters kind of solidify the fact that Pynchon seemed a little bit more interested in covering Mason in his life than he did Dixon. Uh, I would say that Mason is probably um, the main character of the book, uh, a little bit more than Dixon is. Um, yeah, I mean the 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 bit the, the the beginning chapter of these five chapters with the with the wheel the wheel of cheese, uh, it's that's a really hard section not to love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also it's also entertaining that Mason is kind of seems to make that up on the spot. You know, it's it's a ridiculous story that probably does have some basis in in truth in some way in terms of you know I'm sure at some point in the in England that somebody did uh, create a, a massive wheel of cheese. Um, I don't have any historical basis for that, but I, and I doubt it was nearly as big as the one in the book. That does seem like a, a very like European kind of, um, of, of this general time period type, type of thing to do. Um, I do kind of wish we got more about Dixon in these chapters. It would be kind of nice to see Dixon at home. Um, and then he's from the North of England, right? I believe so. I think, if I'm not mistaken, um, it the the lack of of character development for Dixon in in relation to how much we get for Mason, I think, is due uh, to the fact that there's really not much historically known about Dixon as much as yeah. there is about Mason. I don't know the specific reasons behind that. Maybe that's something that Brett can clarify or shine some light on. Um, but my understanding is that there's uh, substantially less information that's known about Dixon than there is about Mason. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I could also see Pynchon, because like we don't get much of their uh, of their um, ship ride home to England. It's it's not even like half of a chapter. I could honestly see that maybe Pynchon cut parts of of this first section, um, perhaps just because I mean. It is a it is a very long kind of uh, prelude prologue to what is more the meat of the book, which is the sections in America. So I th- I know that. Well, I shouldn't say I know. I'm I'm fairly certain that the uh, to kind of go back to the, the historical accuracy of this, the cheese rolling event, as far as I understand, is a, is a real thing, or was. I'm not sure that they still do it. Um, but you know, kind of like, like you had mentioned, Luke, I, th- I think this, with that opening chapter, I, what I like about it is that, yeah, there's that kind of 
unreliability to Mason's recollection of the events. It, it certainly seems like he's embellishing a lot of of what happened, um, or at least parts of it. You know, it has that feel of you know of a kid coming home and you know telling his parents about how there were you know like greatly exaggerating the amount of something that they saw, and then like the more the question on it, it gets reduced and, and and finally pared down to what it really was. But yeah, it seems like you know Mason and it was in a pickle to kind of really make this story enjoyable and just, you know, as a result, kind of, you know, exponentially increase the size of the, the cheese that was there. Um, or maybe he didn't, maybe in this, in this version of, of history, they did have a, um, what seems like a, like a shed sized cheese wheel, uh, that was on display and, and got awry. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that Mason refuses to tell Dixon how him and Rebecca actually met as if it, I think it's in there that it's it's his way of like protecting Rebecca or staying true to Rebecca, uh, which is not necessarily an urge or uh, a feeling that I necessarily understand super well. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know how telling your friend how you, how you and your dead wife met would tarnish her memory. Um, I wasn't necessarily sure what Mason was going for there, but Mason isn't always logical. So, yeah, I mean, it could just be something as simple as you know he doesn't maybe the circumstances behind how they met weren't uh, anything noteworthy and, and he doesn't want it to come off as um, just another boring um, love story. Uh, there, you know, who knows? Yeah. It's, it is interesting that he did find it necessary to make this, you know, very uh, fantastical story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. And if if I recall correctly, it's been a couple of years since I actually read the book, but if I recall correctly, you do eventually learn the actual reason why later in the book, or like how they actually met. Um, And I I don't remember if it's explicitly stated why he felt the need to protect her for one reason or another, but I believe an answer is in there later on. Um, I think the other interesting thing, too, going back to like the introduction episodes where we were talking about like paying attention to the framing of of this book is that that scene in particular is a case of multiple frames being layered on top of one another where there's Mm -hmm. there's especially no way to know what is true and what is not because you have mason who is telling dixon a story that isn't true it could just be embellished but given the fact that in the top level frame one of cherry coke's siblings mentions the fact that rebecca has no record of living there it's possible that the entirety of the story is fabricated and then you have on top of that the top frame narrative of cherry coke telling the story and he could also be the reason why some of this stuff is exaggerated it's possible that mason told the story with a smaller piece of cheese that was rolling down the hill or off the cart it could have been that mason said something completely different but you have this other narrator who has his own sort of aims and purposes for why he's telling the story and he's invested in telling the most entertaining version of the story so that he can stay in this house. Mm-hmm. So it's a good example of the things that we talked about in the introduction to look for of who gets to frame history, who gets to frame what the truth is. You have two different layers here and likely neither of them are being honest. And yet this is what everybody in this story is given to go off of. Uh, I did find the fact that uh, the Cherokee family member said that thing about 
Rebecca and there not being records of her being around, I think it's Gloss, Gloucester, um, Gloucester. Um, because, I mean, I don't, you know, he's, it was kind of a, an example of, I felt like it might be an, an example of author insert or something, because how would the uncle, like, has the uncle, you know, checked the birth certificates for that area? You know, like, I'm, I did think it was maybe possible if the uncle also knew Mason, um, which would explain that little um, piece of dialogue. But I did kind of, I mean, if I had been in that situation, I probably would have responded with, you know, how, how do you know? Um, but I, I, I don't know. I did kind of feel like that was a, a bit of a continuity error or a possible piece of author insert because it's not like the uncle has like checked the records himself, you would think, in England. Right. Well, and not to get like too pomo and cute about it, but you also have technically another frame in that this is a book written by an author that we are reading. And so mm-hmm. it, it certainly could be a case where if you strip away that that postmodern aspect of of a very clear engagement between the author and the reader that we wouldn't know to pay attention to the fact that this, that this story is falsified or that there's something kind of amiss here, unless Pinchon does that self insert of calling the attention to the reader to, to actually pay attention to the fact that she wasn't there or that there's no record of her being there. So I think you're absolutely correct in that it, it could be an author insert probably is, and it's probably there to, facilitate another one of these frames that we're looking at the novel through um yeah going back to the why mason would kind of decide to reframe his meeting with rebecca on page 186 there there's kind of an allusion to the fact that rebecca may have just been settling um and and needed to just to marry someone uh, there's a there's a line in there. It says, uh, "My marriageable years had ebbed away." Rebecca relates so slowly that I never knew the moment I was beached upon the fearful isle where no flower grows. Days pass one upon the next, and then, against hope, lo, a sail. There at the horizon, no idea how far, a faint promise of rescue, a sort of Indianman, as it proved. Kind of recounting her her meeting of uh, Bradley and and Mason. Um, so it it kind of makes me wonder if maybe that's part of it is that Mason doesn't want it to be known that they met, not to say that they didn't love each other, but that maybe the, the meeting or their coming together wasn't necessarily one of uh, fortune or fate. Yeah. I think the other interesting thing to pay attention to is the, the interesting mentions of intimacy between Rebecca and another woman that potentially there was also some idea that, Mason was marrying her to for for some alternative reason as well. There, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in these chapters to consider when it comes mm-hmm. to their relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think a sapphic reading of that's how you say that word. I don't think I've ever said it out loud, but um, if a sapphic reading of of Susanna and Rebecca's relationship, I think that's definitely possible. Um, you know, I mean, they would sleep in the same bed together and stuff like that. So, yeah, absolutely, it was not uncommon. Uh, prior to those things being socially acceptable for people to get married just to kind of provide a uh, a cover for themselves. Mm-hmm. And sapphic is the correct pronunciation of that word, Luke. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that. There's there's times where I, I read a word so many times, but I've never actually said it or heard it out loud that I wonder when I eventually get around to saying it, if I am saying it right. Yeah. To, to kind of branch off of that, um, I, I want to 
kind of touch on the idea of of fate and how it plays into this and 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 to kind of even pull back further um i know we've talked about it before um i think probably in every episode i've i've brought it up or one of us has brought it up the the connections thematically between this book and against the day um specifically when it comes to uh time and fate and uh the kind of doubling or or parallels of things with with regards to fate and and you were talking about mason and and rebecca and how they met and whether it was fated or it was just you know told that way mason you know we find out in here had you know and earlier we knew that he was interested in Susanna peach but we kind of play around with that more here and it made me wonder how things would have been different for him if he had married her, because her father was, as far as I can understand from the text, uh, a rising character in the East India Company, which could have drastically changed Mason's trajectory in his life and where he ended up and how his course was kind of sailing, so to speak. Um, it, you know, in theory, had that had he married Susanna the Mason Dixon line may never have been likely wouldn't have been. Yeah, that's likely true. I can't speak on the the connection to against the day cause I've not read it, but I, I, you're absolutely correct in that, you know, whether it's something as important as the Mason Dixon line or just the average person, we are the sum result of every decision we've ever made from what you eat for breakfast to what kind of car you buy or, or job that you, that you hold. If one of those things changes, then likely your entire position in life probably changes as well so there there is certainly an idea from a a, a predestination or a, or a destiny reading of this book that points to the idea that if if one of these things had changed especially something as major as who he gets married to that nothing would have proceeded the way that it actually does hi everyone by the way hey, i'm well. here hi will <laughs> um i I guess I would say that uh, having having uh, against the day been the the pension novel that I've most recently read, um, it absolutely is resonant to me the way that we essentially have this this kind of constellation of doublings centered on Mason. We have um, he has two true loves he truly does seem to love rebecca regardless of how convenient it might have been in the first place um he, he it does seem like he had sincere at least puppy love for susanna um, he has a sincere partner in the form of jeremiah dixon and he has this false partner in the form of neville masculine he has this true father in the form of you know charles senior but he also has uh, Bradley, who is in some sense his adopted father. And all of these different entanglements being brought together, and especially with regard to the um, 180, uh, yeah, 187, the discussion of comets and the, the, the kind of beginnings of the kind of causal chains of events supplanting the, the, the chain of being. Um, very much centered around Mason as this early astronomer starting to piece it all together. In other words, I'm picking up what you're putting down, Cody. No, no, no. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, to, to keep going on that, on that track, 
because and I've mentioned before, Against the Day is is my favorite of of all of his work, but it's it's very clear these two books were written at the same time because of how they kind of almost interact with each other in in their themes and what they're kind of getting at. I think overall, um, it's it's way more uh, covered and and examined in against the day than it is here but it's definitely present in here and there there's other connections between the two that i i keep seeing the kind of the the ghosts that keep popping up or ghostly images in some cases and then i could mention the the way that time is is a major factor uh in against the day but it does have its place in here with the importance of clocks and as we see in these chapters the and later on too the the 11 days that were quote unquote stolen uh, when they shifted over to the, was it the Gregorian calendar? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it makes, you know, like I said at the beginning of this whole thing, this is the second time I've I've read Mason and Dixon, and it's the the connections between these two are, are more and more apparent as I get further into this. Um, but yeah, you're, I, Will, I loved your assessment about, you know, his, Mason's parallel relationships. I think that was, um, something that really becomes clear in these chapters. And it also seems to be something that like fathers and sons or or parents and their children seems to be something that Kenshan looking at his entire canon of literature is, is particularly invested in um, how, how those relationships form difficult relationships between fathers and their children and, mm-hmm. and how those things sort of play out in a cyclical nature seems pretty big to him. Um, and we've talked about, the cyclical nature of this novel as a whole, but there, there are, there are cycles of that relationship between him and his father and between him and his children too. So it's the, the nature of those relationships seems particularly important, not just to this book, but I would imagine a good chunk of, of his entire written work. Oh yeah. And you can tell the, when he went from not being a father to being a father, there is a major shift in the way that, um, characters and their relationships with other characters are are covered, um, and it's very noticeable. And especially in this book, you know, when you get into Mason's relationships with specifically his dad and Doctor Bradley, um, and his kids too. There's a I, that's part of what made these chapters so hard for me to read, not in a bad way, but just in a very emotionally heavy way. Mm-hmm. Um, having, having kids of my own, like seeing how Mason's absence affects his relationship with them, um, is I've, I've been on both sides of that. Um, my dad wasn't around too much as a, when I was a kid, not that he was like an absent father. He was just often, you know, working late or had, you know, at various things. He was a big hunter and fisher. So he was gone on trips a lot. So I see it from that perspective of not having that father figure in your life all the time, especially at such a formative age. Um, but then also myself being a father um, and and trying to be as present as possible in my kids' lives is, you know, I, I see how, you know, Mason comes home after he's been gone for so long. One of his kids, I don't want to say doesn't care about him, but it's kind of just indifferent. You know, it's, it's oh, dad's home, I guess, you know, for a while. His other, his younger one hardly really even knows him. And 
when you couple that in with the fact that at this point in the story, Mason has just lost Dr. Bradley. He's lost Rebecca. He's by himself. You know, Dixon's not with him at the time. So it's, I, I just imagine the emotional impact that that would have on him as a character, as a person, dealing with all of that simultaneously and how that informs his his decisions and and what he does going forward in the book it's just it's really at this point where mason turns from kind of a pathetic character into something of a tragic one Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i mean similar to yourself cody like my dad was not around because he was working a lot and i also know a lot about difficulties in the relationship between him and his father and and his father before him so seeing what appears to be a, a real multi-generational issue in my own family played out on the page does make it pretty heavy to to actually read through because it's it's so accurate because a, a i don't want to say lesser author but a a potentially less emotionally capable author might be tempted to illustrate it through something more intense or something more openly abusive but the way that Pinchon decides to display it is just very true to life in that what can sometimes be small disagreements over a career choice or just the dedication that a father has to their career leads to results like this. And to your point, Will, it, it does set up quite a tragic character arc for him to be in this position where you can tell that he wants to be around his kids. Like he doesn't want his, his grandfather to just take them from him. You know, they're sort of the last vestige of Rebecca being in his life. And there's a, there's a heartbreaking line in there where he mentions searching for Rebecca in the faces of his children. Mm -hmm. Like he doesn't want them to go, but he also seemingly has something in him that, that can't pull itself away from, from the work that he's doing, which if, you look at it from a, a destiny or a predestination response, the answer as to why that's the case is pretty clear, but it does create a very, a very tragic character and it does, does create a character that is, is flawed in a very honest way. I think the, as you, as you mentioned, Kate, like the, the way he handles that uh, interaction of, of coming back and, and seeing his kids again in, in a, in another book, another author, without the subtlety that's applied here, it could have easily gone off the rails and, and gotten heavy-handed or just ham-fisted. But when you I kind of like stepped back from all of it and kind of reassessed it, there's it's there's a, some absurdism in it, and then it, it there's very tender moments as well. Like, you know, it kind of starts he buys them what's essentially gift shop toys. Um that he like toy ships, I think is what it was. Um, and then spends a little bit of time with them and has trouble interacting with them because it's been, you know, so long since he's seen them, uh, eventually tells them that he's going to have to leave again. And then in doing so there's that, um, we kind of go back to the, uh, against the day, similar, uh, thematics of the, the parallel or the, the parallax in this case of the shifting perspective where you have, the two kids react so differently to his saying that he's going to be gone again and not just gone again, but gone for a long time. Um, and 
it's it's so heartbreakingly real that it if it hadn't been done the way it was done with with the the care and the craft that's put into the way this is written it would not have had the emotional impact that it it does have i do think that the kids uh response to mason saying he's going to america which i'm trying to look up right now um the response is like they mentioned indians um stuff like that it does seem to be they do show an awareness of America as like the the frontier at that point, which I think is interesting. Like, you know, they are excited for him, um, at least in some ways. And the reality of him being gone, you know, that, that does seem to be kind of all they've ever known. Um, but I did think it was interesting to kind of look look at that through the, you know, like the, they do seem excited and like their father's off on some great adventure, which I thought was interesting and does kind of lead into some stuff later in the book. Yeah, I, I saw their reaction as kind of um, in the same way. Like they were excited for him, but I think they were also just excited because, like, like kids are excited when their parents go on a trip, you know, because some, they might bring something back for them. Um, so maybe that's what they're getting worked up about is just the idea that oh, maybe we'll get some cool uh, toys from a different country or you know something to that effect. But yeah, they definitely are they react differently than the 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 adults than his sister you know who's absolutely pissed off that he's leaving again um so it's it's an interesting way to um to see those two react so differently yeah i did find the quote uh the boys thump and shout stakes bears indians and the like yeah um yeah which is i don't I, i did find that part pretty cool and it yeah like i said it does kind of foreshadow stuff and it's interesting that in most of the cases where them going to America is brought up to other people, other than just Mason and Dixon, the responses are usually like, oh, God, why would you want to go there? Like, it's so dangerous or like there seems to be a lot of people who are afraid of America in, in one way or another or find it to be a very unappealing place to go, which does create quite a bit of anticipation for a reader who is paying attention to those to those lines of dialogue and is pretty clever foreshadowing for for things that they encounter that there seems to be a understanding that this is not a pleasant place to have to spend several months in Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact this might be a, a bad assignment which is you know contrasting to the horrible things that we've seen and heard about in the first place they went, which had no sort of reaction from people really does make a reader think if, if they're, if they're paying close attention when reading the book. Well, and let's to kind of continue on that, uh, the mention of the reaction to them going to America and not reacting to where they just were. Um, the, the kind of allusion to, and we talked about this earlier, how the island itself of St. Helena seems to impact people, I guess is the, the right way to put it, or a way to put it at least. Um, it, it certainly has a way of causing some, some psychological um, changes to, to individuals who are there. Um, I'm... And and maybe I just didn't catch it in the in the text, but the the line he's not Dieter at least anymore he isn't. Um, 
is it ever ex- made clear like what that is referring to other than like Dieter just is not physically there or he's not the same person or or that he was a plant by the EIC? Uh, I, I took that as Baskelin uh, acknowledging that uh, Dieter might be might have been an hallucination. That was my other thought was that, yeah, he was just someone that Maskelin had kind of just created. Yeah, that's how I read it, too, that this version of him was just some kind of revenant of of the person that he knew, but was not the the, the true version of him. Uh, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't make heads or tails of it. I, I, I kind of ended on the interpretation that Maskelin may or may not have, you know, met a phantom. He may or may not have hallucinated a German soldier. Um, or he might have just realized at some point that he could get the island to himself if he acts crazy. That's true. Like Mason, mm-hmm. uh, like the uh, was it the captain on the ship or from earlier, or no, yeah. not the captain. The there was a the person on the ship who acted crazy so that they could kind of be by themselves. And yeah, that's 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 making me think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, and it. I mean, that now that I think about it, you know, because Mason, while he's there, is is seeing Rebecca's ghost. So it could just be, you know, whoever Dieter is could just be someone that's that bears importance to masculine that maybe we don't have insight to, or it's just, you know, a manifestation of, of his own internal workings and whatever he's trying to work out emotionally or, or psychologically. And Dieter's just a representation of that to him. Um, but yeah, it's not made clear, but I think, you know, those are all valid, uh, interpretations, I think. Yeah. I think, I think the really interesting point in that whole conversation is that tis someone else you may be confused pray erase Dieter from your mind and I shall be much obliged and there it really is kind of incoherent because sure Dieter might have changed he's not Dieter anymore whether that means it's not a, it, it's a different ghost or he is a ghost he's no longer Dieter um it doesn't follow that you would just immediately jump onto Dieter never existed. There's no point in talking about him. Um, but I am still trying to, to free somebody from a contract. That's where it really starts to get weird to me. Right. And that's what, what kind of made me think that he was, that maybe masculine knew something and that, and said something that he shouldn't have, and then was trying to backtrack on that and kind of get it, you know, erase it from their minds in a, in the only way he could think of, which is just to ask them kindly not to think about it anymore. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's a really, that few lines just really kind of stuck with me for a while. Yeah. I would be curious if any of our listeners have ideas on, on what that may represent. Yeah. I would, um, I would love to hear other thoughts on that. Or if there is something that more explicitly states it somewhere, I would, I would love to know that. And I mean, speaking of things that may or may not be real, how did we feel about the entire uh, tableau inside the museum? Oh, the the Jenkins Ear Museum. Yeah, that I I had almost entirely forgotten about that section since the last time I read it, and it going back and rereading it. You know, I I had forgotten. Like as soon as I saw Mister Mournville, I was like, I know that name, and it was, and it clicked with me that it was, you know, not too terribly long ago that we were introduced to him. Um, but 
that whole interaction where he's in there and then, you know, the whole whispering into the ear, there was such a, for me at least, a, there was a real general creepiness of how that whole scene was written. It was very tense um, and just very subtly haunting. And it it really ratcheted up the tension for me in a really weird way that I had totally forgotten existed in this book. Yeah, it, it it's similar to stuff you've brought up in the past, Cody. That entire section had a very Lynchian vibe to me. Yeah. Like, I could absolutely see David Lynch doing something similar it, to that in a film. I'm glad you mentioned that. He kind of did. And because what that made me think of, I don't know if you've seen uh, Lost Highway. There's a character in that movie that is played by Robert Blake. And he mm-hmm. meets Bill Pullman's character at a party and has Bill Pullman call him at his own house. Yep. And answers the phone there. And it's absolutely terrifying when it happens. And that's what this kind of made me like think about is that it that just weird and disturbing haunting imagery of I know this isn't a real thing that's happening, but it's absolutely terrifying because it feels like it really is happening. And it it you're you're so bought in at the time that it just really, really worked for me. Yeah, I agree. And that was actually the exact thing from one of his movies that I was thinking of. This idea of just something that should be a normal interaction at a party or in this case with the curator of the museum, but is just really askew in a way that is not necessarily dangerous, but is very unsettling. Mm-hmm. And the the intense amount of pressure that Morneville puts on him to not just view the ear, but take it out of its case and speak into it. Um, it, the entire time, it just kind of makes the reader have this dread about what is going to happen. Um, that is very unique. It, it, you don't come across many things like this in in literature, in my experience. It's really interesting that it's it's a one man show put on for one person, you know, which has to be like mm-hmm. incredibly uncomfortable. Um, there is a there is a story I read in a, in a music review of the Velvet Underground from the last about 10 years, it just kind of lives rent free in my head about this guy, like going to his, going to somebody he knows house and the guy playing the song heroin by uh velvet underground, like in like staring at him while he was just like playing it by himself, you know? Oh gosh. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. horrible. That's so terrible. Yeah. And that's was, like an eight minute song too. Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, crazy. Man. It was a memorable, as a memorable review and a memorable story, but it just it reminded me of that. Where like you know, like I have to assume that Mason is like you know, like is he making eye contact? Is he not making eye contact? You know, this guy's yeah. going through like the like a. I mean, I've seen one man shows, but I was part of a large audience. I don't, you know, what I'm saying like a one man audience would just be insane. Well, so I guess I, I have to ask you all: Have you been in tourist traps like this before? Well, I was about to say. I haven't had this kind of situation in a tourist trap, but I have had kind of what Luke just mentioned. Um, it, this God, this was before I had kids. So this was probably 15 years ago. Um, I, I was going to go to a, a record listening party. Like a bunch of us, we had the idea, like we're going to, everyone will bring over a few records. We'll, you know, have some beers and, and just listen to music all night. Well, I was the only one that showed up and the guy whose house it was, was like, well, we can still listen to music. And I, I didn't like, I'm 
my personality, I have a hard time saying no in those kind of situations. So I was just kind of like, all right. So we sat in his living room and he put the first record on. I don't even remember what it is anymore because I've tried to erase this from my mind. And he he got his guitar out and was playing along to the record while I was there. And he was like singing and the whole thing. And I was just sitting there very uncomfortably like, mm-hmm, okay. And just kind of checking my watch every now and then. It was, I think I left after about an hour. I was just like, I got to go home. My wife needs me. I got to, you know, I got to work in the morning. It was, it was just very uncomfortable. Uh, but at least I could get out of there pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I've, I have not been in a tourist trap situation like that, but I have been very active in local music scenes where I am the only person who has showed up for a show. And <laughs> the pre- the pressure to not just stand there and still watch the band perform, <laughs> but also appear into the music um, is uniquely horrifying. I've been on both sides of that stage. <laughs> well, so I bring up the, the tourist trap thing, because obviously that's, that's what this is, you know, that's what this is. Uh, but... Beyond that, there's a certain vibe. There, there's, it's a, it's definitely an intentional thing that the kind of person who wants to open up a tourist trap cultivates within themselves. And it is the ability to make any kind of offer of something, even something entirely innocent like a bathroom key or so, like some beef jerky, make it feel like there's a threat of murder resting right behind it. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if you if you ask for the bathroom key and you know, you didn't buy gas, you better have a good reason. <laughs> and yeah. so like it's you know, I've never been in a situation where a a madman who just got dumped by his fiance and is abandoned by his employer on an island in the middle of nowhere, and in particular a weird cabin, a secluded cabin in the middle of nowhere on an island in the middle of nowhere to perform one man shows to an audience of there's no way it's more than five people at any given time. He's just sitting there saying, yeah, you know, life has its ups and downs here. Talk to this ear. I think, I think, I think he, he's nailed the particular insanity of tourist trap, uh, conductors, I guess better than i've ever seen before well and to top it all off the real cherry on the whole thing is that he pulls the the whole disappearing merchant act at the end of it when he gets out and he turns around and the whole thing is gone and he you know it's it was the perfect way to end that whole interaction i thought one thing to think about i mean like if if the entrance to the museum is anything to go off of it would have been super cramped in there um so, I mean, you know, it's going to be close quarters where he's 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 doing all this, you know, singing and dancing and whatever. And then Mason's probably at most a few feet away. Yeah, it's 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 an uncomfortable scene in a number of different ways. Yeah, I mean, the there is a real sense of paranoia there because Mason continues to make comments about how he is desperately searching for a way to leave, like either an exit or a way to exit this conversation or anything like that. And this guy is just not not allowing him to and i think the other interesting thing too is it's a very you know looking looking more at the details of it it's a very religious sort of scene in how it's set up this idea that there is this 
cabin rather than a church, but this cabin that is supposedly capable of granting wishes or or has some kind of potentially magic power encased through this relic. You know, it it, it reminded me a lot of the reality of of Catholicism, where for a diocese to have the ability to dispense of the holy mysteries of the magisterium, the uh, the actual not necessarily church in a lot of cases because they don't have enough relics, but the cathedral that oversees the diocese needs to have like this piece of a saint in it or a piece of the, the supposedly true cross or um, like blood from, from a important religious figure somewhere. And it isn't until that thing is installed that the diocese is capable of actually doing anything for, for the members of the church. Like the whole, and if you ever look at the things that these relics are encased in, I forget the specific word for them, but it it has a very similar look to how Pinchon describes what the year is is encased in in this particular um, this particular museum. And so there's there's an underlying current of religious terror as well in this scene as not just him trying to get away from this this complete weirdo, but also this this idea that. You know, him being a religious person, being from a country that used to be heavily invested in Catholicism, probably also had some understanding of these things. And potentially, because of the fact that he doesn't appear to be particularly devoted to his religion, or maybe was at one time and no longer is, probably has a, a, another underlying element of fear or, or paranoia as to what is happening here and what happens if he if he follows along with this guy, what happens if he handles this sort of holy relic? There's so many different things being being played up in that scene that that really contribute to the atmosphere that Pinchon creates. Yeah, I, I got a lot of religious undertones from that as well. And specifically when he's kind of considering and eventually does whisper into the ear, uh, that really had a, a sort of, for me at least, a, a representation of... of prayer and its futility. Uh, he, he kind of had this opportunity to kind of get the one thing he would want the most. And he, he mentions that, you know, obviously that would be to have Rebecca back, but understands that he can't do that. And so instead wishes for, you know, something, what is this? It's essentially a sweet thing. You know, he wants Dixon to be safe and, and return safely. But in, in the next paragraph, it kind of gives this impression of, you know, even though he has that hope that it would work he kind of ultimately knows that it won't and i kind of for me at least coming as a as a, a lapsed catholic um it it had that air of you know understanding that the idea of prayer is is great but if ultimately once you really start to think about it, it it's an absolutely futile thing to do um and i think he got that impression and so i thought it was even more interesting when when dixon kind of played along with it later on in the in the story and it, put that hope into him for a, a moment if only that yeah absolutely and there's also you know there there is a chance that dixon while he claims he was joking maybe Could he wasn't maybe yeah. he wasn't you know weird things happen in this book his his wish comes true D D dixon yeah. is fine and so i think it's really interesting too that you know as i've mentioned on previous episodes and back in the the crying of lot 49 chapter the the purposeful decision making in in ambiguity and in, in how Pinchon outlays these chapters and, and his narratives is that he kind of leaves it up to the reader to decide 
you know what how do you how do you feel about this what do you think the reality is did this have some effect or did it not is this guy you know just some some crazed lunatic on this island that that has an effect on people or it does he behave this way because there is some truth to what he is doing um and, and if there is some truth to what he is doing and what he believes in then then it turns from a a story about a guy who's potentially crazy to somebody who just has real conviction about what he believes in um it it, it really invites the reader to to add their own interpretation and i love it when when his work does that yeah and it's especially notable in this book to pay attention to which of the fantastical elements are couched because later you know in this section that we've read there's the whole story about the octuple gloucester cheese which is you know technically you could make a cheese of that size but it is plainly a lie there you know there's no way thomas pynchon found some story about an, an octuple gloucester that you know essentially made the first dangerous cheese chasing uh whatever whatever they call that in Gloucestershire, but it's here yes you have the normal degree of yes everything in the story is being told by the reverend to entertain his nephews but we don't we don't know if the reverend believes this is true and we're not supposed to know if the reverend believes this is true much like later events in the book but this is the first one that i can think of that happens so far maybe i've missed something correct me if i'm wrong that is actually something fantastical. Everything else has just been unrealistic or absurd, but it's it's always been absurd in the sense of you could imagine people doing it on stage, but not in real life. This is magic, and it's not explicable by, well, there's so much wind that it's driving you crazy. It's just, this is an ear that moves of its own accord. Yeah, I don't think there's been anything previous to this that would fit that description i think you're right there i mean unless you wanted to spotlight like the fortune teller accurately predicting the ship uh getting destroyed but nothing to to the same degree certainly yeah and that one was even i mean arguably literally just naval intelligence <laughs> right right there's yeah. an alternate explanation for that yeah which also the concept of naval intelligence being info siloed through fortune tellers on docks is is a great pinchonian <laughs> idea yeah. yeah well and even the, the the telling of that story of of the the cheese rolling and we kind of touched on this will at the at the very beginning but it that in itself is very pinchonian that that highly exaggerated um absurd kind of grounded in realism but hyper extended beyond anything that's possible uh, mm -hmm. but still presented as being real yeah. is, is very much in line with what he does. Yeah. I mean, not to spoil later in the chat, in the podcast, but that that's the most Pinchonian part of this <laughs> section for me. Yeah. Pretty fair. Yeah. It's really easy to visualize too, which I love visualizing the cheese rolling down the hill. Yeah. I had forgotten that was that, sh that was starting these these chapters and as soon as i saw the the first couple of sentences i was like okay yeah yeah i remember this part <laughs> especially if you've seen what events like that look like in real life because because people either showcasing cheese like this event was for does happen and there are also events around the world where people do roll wheels of cheese down hills mm -hmm. so if you if you kind of have an idea of what that looks like 
and then just really balloon that up to the size that he's talking about it it, it does create quite a funny visual like you said luke yeah well and i did a little bit of research into the the cheese rolling and it doesn't it doesn't seem like the the may day occurrence of a cheese rolling has any historical precedent whatsoever and so it's, it's really it's i find it interesting what parts he chooses to make completely unreal because you know in 2023 as we're recording this you know reddit and stumble upon and facebook and twitter in the past 15 years have really made you know the idea that oh yeah in gloucestershire there's just this town where they roll some cheese down a hill <laughs> that's something that a lot of people know there's an entire netflix uh like hour-long documentary about the cheese rolling competitions but in 1997 this was some very esoteric knowledge really and he chose to say all right i'm looking at this historical documentation of this very strange obscure event and i'm gonna put it on mayday not on the the actual uh celebratory event that would be around a month i can't remember before or after may day yeah and so that that kind of goes back we talked about this i think with in lot 49 but when when you really cut back and and i thought the same thing about the cheese rolling thing because it is such a weirdly specific event to have knowledge on um and who knows when he found out about this because yeah the book was published in 97 there's no telling when he you know, caught wind of, of that event. And it, it re reinforces the idea for, for the listeners who are unfamiliar with, you know, life without internet. And I'm not trying to, to dunk on anybody for that, you know, by any means, but having grown up in the, in the early eighties and nineties, um, you know, we, we would have to go before the internet, you'd have to go to the library and do all your research there and pour through card catalogs and, um, you basically spend hours, you know, either going through encyclopedias or, or back and forth through the shelves, trying to find the, the things that you needed to get whatever information you needed to think about him doing this. And the, the kind of weird and uh, unusual events that he picks up from history, like the, the Jenkins's ear war, the war of Jenkins's ear. I, I had, I never knew about that whole situation until I read this book. And who the hell knows how he came upon it and then decided to plug it in here with enough knowledge of its backstory to accurately portray it. I did a little bit of di of, re of reading about that whole thing. There's a lot more into it I want to look into, and, and maybe Brett can shine a light on that one too. Um, but just the amount of literal footwork he would have to do for a book this size, and even earlier with like Gravity's Rainbow. like It's, it's astonishing to think of the amount of obscure knowledge that he has just you know, living in his brain to pull all of this out and put it together into a cohesive narrative where all of this works and doesn't feel like it's just forced in for, you know, uh, for attention or for just to have it in there, you know, it's there to serve a purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking about in the context of him knowing about Egyptian mythology in, in Lot 49, but it, it's so mm -hmm. true with several instances in these chapters, like you're talking about. I mean, the man has a well-used library card, like, yeah. for sure. Well, do you think, I, I have read somewhere, I'm forgetting where right now, but I do think that it is, um, 
it is known that Pynchon went to England and did research. So you would think that perhaps if he went to Gloucester, he might have, you know, find out about the cheese rolling and stuff. True. Yeah. That's still a lot of research for a book. I mean, to go to a different country and everything, a whole different continent. I want to go back to um, talking about his his relationships, but specifically his relationship with um, Dr. Bradley. Um, because I think that relationship plays such a large part in his uh, formation uh, as a, as a character, <clears throat> excuse me, as a character. So it, what, one thing I highlighted in, in the reading of this, and it reminded me of, of Lot 49, when Oedipa had her, her time driving to just think to herself and, and gather her thoughts and have that moment of, of clarity. There's a kind of similar situation in here on page 185 where Mason is just kind of processing and talking to himself and talking through his, his grief. Um, and it just, it, it really reminded me of that particular scene, but also that that's something I do when I'm struggling with something and, and need to kind of work it out. And I don't have anyone that I can talk to about it is I will verbally out loud, speak to myself back and forth to kind of put everything together and, and sort it all out. I don't know if y'all do that as well, but that part really hit home for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm less actively verbal with it, but I absolutely do talk to myself when trying to sort these kinds of things out. And I think it's really, it's really sad. Just the, the everybody knew everything except me. I only thought I did. So of course it was I who did the most screaming. Mm -hmm. It's just a, it's a really, I mean, that is one of the saddest parts of any relationship is when you realize that the other person is on a different page from you. And I can't imagine what that's like when it's somebody who is such a substitute father figure as Bradley was for Mason. Yeah, and I thought what really, really spoke to Mason's character was was his reluctance, and well, not even reluctance, but his outright refusal to take credit for the work that that Bradley did that he could have taken credit for um, and put his name on, but chose not to do that. And I, I loved the way it was written. That particular part where it says, uh, "Yet Mason, as Bradley's assistant, performed many of them. Shall he put in? Uh, shall he put in a claim for these? He thinks not, as he was really giving them to Bradley, all for nothing more than thank you, Mister Mason, and well done." Like just knowing that he he cared about his work, and it wasn't about the recognition. It wasn't about having his name on whatever you know scholarly articles or whatever would have been put on at the time. For him, it was just about doing the thing and and doing that job with a person that he genuinely cared about. And especially coming from the relationship with his father, which is mm -hmm. not, you know, openly antagonistic, but you can tell that Mason didn't understand his dad's reverence for, you know, mill work and, and for the baking of bread. Like he, in the last couple of, of paragraphs, where we kind of get a flashback of that period, you can tell there's there's somewhat of an intellectual disconnect between the two of them on that. And so for him to find something that he really does connect with, like does love, you know, astronomy and, and the charting of stars and the movement of planets, and then to to kind of have a substitute father figure for him that shares that love and shares that kind of same reverence, that creates a very powerful bond between the two of them that... I think really does underpin a lot of the decisions that he makes as far as why 
he's not going to 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 do anything to to take that research or to get his name on credit for it. He wants to to honor that relationship because in a lot of ways it's the relationship he probably wanted to have with his his own father but but couldn't. Yeah, and to complicate things further, even assuming Susanna and um Rebecca weren't uh you know euphemistically intimate but just generically you know close and uh we still know that bradley and susanna had hosted mason and rebecca in their home for at least a couple of years there they lived together they weren't just it wasn't just a uh surrogate father-son relationship it wasn't just a potentially sexual but at least intense platonic relationship between the, the the women but it was also a household they lived together they lived with each other and to some extent mason it seems lived for bradley mm-hmm. i do think it's something that you know i don't I, you know i'm not gonna say it's a criticism of the book but it is something that i i would have liked to see just slightly more of mason's immediate response to being kicked out of the wake because it really does seem like that might be one of the hardest things he's gone through yet in the book yeah agreed that yeah that does feel like there's there's something sort of left on the table there well let's uh let's go ahead and talk about mason's relationship with his father um since we're kind of coming off of talking about his surrogate father in a sense um it's you know as with the other mentions in this in these chapters of of relationships it's it's heavy it you know mason very clearly his his dad you know i think it's it's clear his dad wasn't necessarily physically abusive with him um i, I obviously in that time in in history there was more of a, you know, there was more physical disappointing of, of kids. And so I'm sure there was some of that, but it's, there's a definite emotional, um, we could call it a Canyon between the two of them really. And I, I think in way, in a way for someone like Mason, especially, you know, knowing what we know about him from the time that we're being told the story takes place, that had to have been even harder for him, I think, than if he'd, been in in a physically abusive relationship with his dad which not to dismiss how awful that would have been but i think for mason having a dad who's emotionally distant from him in the way that his is 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 has got to be just really really challenging for him yeah and i think actually i I don't think it's at all diminishing in it in this case for you to point out that he might have he might the character might have wished for that because we do see his the mention of his father holding a loaf of bread in two different ways we mm-hmm. have him ho- wishing that his father had just hit him with a with a old cob rather than berate him and call him a fool and then the last thing we see is he picking up him picking up a loaf and holding it to his face young mason thinks he's about to eat it so he clearly thinks that's how his dad interacts with the world his father is somebody who he picks up a loaf to eat it 
or to use it as a weapon. It's these. It's, it's not an explicit dichotomy, but it's definitely implied. And so, even though his father is trying to, in that in that moment, figure out, or not figure out, but try try to communicate this kind of grand spiritual uh, belief that he has surrounding millwork, all the Charles Jr. can do is think about like, well, you're going to eat the bread or you're going to hit me with it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, evidence for uh, Mason's dad being emotionally distant um, comes through even before we get that information and before the dad even appears with um, Mason? Number one, he doesn't he doesn't seem to want to go home. He seems, you know, he, he lingers in London, I think, for a little bit. Uh, looking for ghosts and stuff like that. Um, but he does, Mason does seem somewhat scared of his kids and definitely is emotionally distant from his children. And he doesn't seem to know how to show them warmth or uh, affection. Uh, it is shown that I think Mason like tries to tickle uh, one of his kids and I don't think yeah. he's successful. You know, it did seems like that's kind of an awkward moment for him and his children. Uh, it doesn't seem like Mason, you know, Mason doesn't seem to have, have had a, a positive uh, father figure in his life, at least in terms of uh, when he was a child, um, which I, I think is interesting to think about that, you know, that the fact that Mason's father is is emotionally distant and kind of a, a hard person to please uh, does seem to come out in the way that Mason treats his own children. Well, yeah, that definitely uh, transfers from situation to situation i think in 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 real life um when you have a an emotionally distant parent uh my understanding is that it very often will continue down the lineage because you know whatever kid grows up experiencing that tends to accept that as that's how kids are raised um and so it it continues going on and, until someone can actually you know, catch it and take the steps to work through being that way and, and kind of eradicate that behavior. But it definitely, you're, you're definitely right in that he, it is kind of foreshadowed in a sense. There's uh, on page 203, it talks about um, he has to go talk to his dad and, he, and how just uncomfortable and, and scared he is to do that, you know, to go as a 30 something year old man to go and have to tell his dad, Hey, I'm, I'm leaving to go, to America, um, and knowing that the knowing the conversation that's going to come as a result of that clearly uh, discomforts him. Yeah, and I, at the same time, it is it's very nice because we do see, uh, you know, we do see in some sense kind of a a paragraph two on two o two showing the difference between his and his father's relationship and the one he will have with his sons. Because whereas his father is keeping trying to communicate this, this fundamental doubt, this fundamental fear of trying to connect more with your, your child and pushing them away incidentally, what we have is Charles Mason, his sons coming to say goodnight to him stumbling over themselves and falling into him and just being fiercely loving and for him to just cry just crying accepting the fact that his children are are still willing to give him a hug even though he's been gone for the past two years and 
his family is just sitting there judging him for crying as though he doesn't deserve the love that his sons are lavishing upon him. And it's it's just lovely to see that, in, in some sense, at least, the chain is being broken. That, that, that yeah. cycle of, maybe not abuse, but neglect is being broken. Well, and it even seems that, that Mason's dad is at least kind of aware of his behavior. At the very end of, of chapter 20, um, it there's a, I, I was going to save it for my, my quote, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he there's an interaction that, that goes on between him and his dad, but it's not really anything that's actually said. It's more something that his dad wants to say to him. And it kind of implies that his, his dad knows that he's, you know, he is the way he is and, and that it's had an impact on him, but he can't do anything to get around that. It's so baked in at this point um, that he can't change that behavior. He can see it coming and he can, he knows it's going to happen, but he can't do anything to prevent it from happening. Yeah, and that that particular inclusion is is one of the most realistic parts of this. That that makes mm-hmm. it hard to read if you have any experience with it because that hit me hard. Yeah, yeah, because I know that my dad's the same way. Like I know mm-hmm. that that he, there are things that he wants to say, and he just knows that he can't. Yeah. Um, and seeing that captured so accurately, it, it really does hit home. So the other, I guess big part of this group of chapters that I wanted to cover is the 11 days. Um, this, if I recall correctly, comes back um, routinely throughout the rest of the book, but this is the first time we, we get a mention of it. And it's a really fascinating kind of examination of how people react to changes, um, not just societal or political changes, but scientific changes. Um, because the townspeople's reactions to the, the 11 days that are essentially removed to adjust to this new calendar, to the Gregorian calendar, um, it creates such a, a really a violent response from these people who just have no way of conceptualizing why this would be done. Um, and can't see the necessity of doing it. It's just a, you know, they, they, the capital T, they took this from us and, and they've done this and that with it and they did it for this reason or they did it for that reason. It, there's this whole kind of litany of uh, conspiracy theories that kind of abound as soon as, um, I think it's on page 192 where you have all these different kind of um, implications or implications of of why it was done and they they kind of say that mason maybe had something to do with it um i i I thought this was a really fascinating part of this book and like i said i know it comes in later and it plays a big part in a lot of things but um it's a really it's it's one of those things in history again i didn't know about that before reading this book and so it it gave me something new to learn yeah and i think it's it is one of the most captivating scenes of just almost pure dialogue that we've come across in this book so far. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know Luke was the one who mentioned the fact that there's not much description in the book. There's a lot of dialogue in the book because it's just a man telling a story at its, at its very top tier of of framing. But a lot of times, as we've also discussed in, in past chapters, that can sometimes feel a bit tedious or like there's a lot going on that is hard to track. 
That is not necessarily the case in this particular conversation in the bar. I find this entire conversation incredibly compelling and interesting. And the way that Pinchon uses something that did occur in real history and had this level of insane response to, you know, in the actual, like, you know, charted history of this happening to the effect of what he's novel with an age of science and, and an age of religion kind of clashing is really geniusly done because as we were talking about last episode with with the clocks and this idea of we have all of these questions or all of these things being talked about in reference to who controls history who tells history who gets to to determine what is what is fact or fiction in history now we're getting into this idea of of who controls time and who controls you know what what the the hour is you know, when it's just a clock, or in this case, who controls what day of the week or year or, or month it is in, in what's being done here. And a huge amount of the backlash that occurred in real life and is also present in this in these scenes of dialogue is the fact that this was considered a Catholic way of gatekeeping, mm-hmm. that it was something being done by, by the Pope and that it was something that was in direct opposition to to England because... France had it. Well, we've been fighting France forever, so now we're just adopting the methodology of the enemy. We became Anglican because we didn't agree with the the the, the Catholic Church, and now we're accepting their way of datekeeping. And we haven't really talked about it too much on the podcast, but we have talked about it in just our conversations with each other, that there is this sort of repeated mention of the Jesuits as this kind of capital T they potential, and, and that it's it's some sort of outside force and they're they're brought up again in this scene talking about it that that the the jesuits in league with with the catholic church and the pope are are partially or potentially wholly responsible for forcing england into a position where where the dates are changing and that somehow they're wresting control away from this this more enlightened society that's moving into an age of science and we see all of these different people who claim religion and and identify themselves as, oh, well, I'm a Quaker, or, oh, I'm an Anglican, or oh, I'm this or that, but none of them behave religiously. So we have this this society of Englishmen who are trying to move away from, from God, uh, at least in deed, not necessarily maybe yet in word, and then we have this extreme backlash being prompted to almost a, a resting of control in some way or another by, by a religious order. And it, it it underpins a lot of the interesting conflicts and decisions that have been happening uh, on behalf of the characters as as the book has gotten to this point. Where if you're really if you're really looking at the religiosity of the novel, um, there's a lot of conflict that exists in there, and it, it's it is one of my my favorite sections that we've read so far. And and I imagine when we get to the end of the book, it, it will remain one of my favorite sections, not just for the underpinning culturally that it contains, but also as we'll get into, I'm imagining shortly, the this idea of the frozen 11 days and everything. It, it's an absolutely excellent piece of writing by Pinchon. Yeah, and it's, it's it, it, I don't know, it's just a really interesting thing to get worked up about, and I think that's kind of portrayed by, um, you know, people like Mason and, and Bradley at the time, who were just kind of, you know, they, they understood the reason for making the change because they were looking at it scientifically because as far as I understand it, the, the reason they, they shifted the calendar was had to do with the solstice to make sure the solstice stayed on the right or stayed around the right time um, and wasn't falling too late into the summer. Um, 
but Mason's, you know, reaction is like, it's 11 days. Who cares? Like, why are you getting so worked up about all of this? It's not a huge deal. You guys are making something out of it. That's, you know, way more than it really, you're making a mountain out of molehill essentially. And it's, you know, that, that idea, that overreaction to little events like that is, is something that historically still happens. Um, and it's, you know, seeing it happen in this time, you know, in the 1700s and knowing that it still happens in the 2020s is, I, I don't want to say it's, it's a good thing, but it's, it's kind of grounds the reality of, you know, that some things just never change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, not, not to get too political, but we do have a climate that is, that is hyper, I'll say vigilant in looking for an enemy right now mm-hmm. on on both sides of the aisle and that's something that has continued through history that that explicit you know everything bad in my life or everything annoying is because of some other outside force that is seeking to make my life worse right it, there's there's always something that's that's causing that problem and it's you know there whatever whenever that thing isn't the thing anymore we can move on to the whatever the next thing is that that does it if it's not clocks it's removing eleven days from the calendar you know and so on and so forth so I feel like the internet would freak out and like there'd be so many conspiracy theories if we had to lose eleven days from a calendar oh in, my God. in modern times mm-hmm. yeah holy crap yeah the whole internet would melt I just, I didn't even think about how that would go down that would be unreal. Would definitely be a meme as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what did you guys think of the the? Uh, they're referred to, I think, as as aliens. The kind of the this the group that lives within that eleven days. The Asiatic um, pygmies. Yes, thank you. That's that was the other term for them. I I found that whole concept again kind of ties back into against the day. Um. But it was just a really uh, a fascinating part of the of the chapter to, to read through, and, and the shift from before it to when it is occurring, like that, it's so brief and just happens that it. I had to kind of go back and and reread to make sure I didn't see the the kind of blending of the of those parts. I went I went way off on a very um, unproductive research tangent regarding <laughs> who these people were because sure he says they're asiatic pygmies but um on the prior page we have people guessing the indies china and then stepney with no question mark and the joke there is just that stepney is on the east side of what used to be london and nowadays it is just kind of like the east end mm. area um but i decided to dig into celtic languages to try and figure out if um, the description of the grammar uh, might refer to a Celtic language. And uh, you know what? I'm not an expert on, you know, clearly the, the quote-unquote Asiatic pygmies uh, are supposed to be, you know, Tibetan or something. Um, you know, maybe they're some of the, the Indian Ocean Islanders, but regardless... I don't know any of their linguistics, but the descriptions that uh, Mason uses regarding gender and the way that 
possession and time and cases are used in the language of these people. It's actually not that far off of what, at this point, is slightly archaic um, Britonic languages. Hmm. Um, so they might be from Stepney, I guess. Okay. Especially since Stepney was associated at this point in time with thieves and hoodlums. And they would have, they would have you know, at that point in time, thieves can't and other languages that derived from the 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 creoles of uh, Romani and Celtic languages wouldn't be too dissimilar from that. So that's just a unproductive tangent, but it just felt like <laughs> someone might find that interesting because they might just be from Stepney. That is interesting. If you are from Stepney, let us know. And <laughs> if you speak thieves can't. Yes. Right in. <laughs> I think Kate, you were the one that mentioned that there's not much um, moving the plot forward in in these chapters. It's more kind of character building, so mm-hmm. it it definitely kind of limits what we can talk about in that respect. But the character development, I think, and you know, it. I think that I've read some people's reactions to the book, and they don't necessarily. I think the the general consensus is that part two is arguably the, the best part of the book because, you know, the, all of the, the action and everything takes place in that part. But I think part one tends to get uh, kind of an undue negative reaction just because of its its general kind of slow-paced and, and character-building aspects. I personally have enjoyed it very much, especially these five chapters and really learning more about um, specifically Mason, because, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there, there really isn't a lot about Dixon to build off of. So it's, it's kind of hard to, to do that in the first place, but, um, it's, I, I like this aspect of pension because with his early stuff, you know, V and, and lot 49 and gravity's rainbow, um, there are, there's a lot of characters, especially in gravity's rainbow but there's not really a lot of time to really get to know those characters and really see them develop and change and, and have an arc. But with, with his later works, specifically with, um, with Mason and Dixon and, and, and against the day, there's some great character development in that, in that book as well. Um, I, I feel like his ability to really craft characters and really um, let them shine and let them develop and let us, you know, watch them grow as characters, um, got a lot stronger in that time between um, Gravity's Rainbow and, and his later work. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, as we've talked about multiple times, the, the warmth of this book and the, the emotional impact of this book, that doesn't exist without character writing like this happening. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding the the tragic nature of the character, understanding why Cherry Coke goes and visits the grave so often, understanding the the depth of the relationship between Mason and Dixon and how it will be challenged as they go through this journey together and all of the things that do happen in the second part of the book that everyone loves so much. It, the impact would be lessened without this first section being there. Um, you really need to have some groundwork laid in order for a lot of those relational aspects of the book to to function properly. 
Otherwise, if they're not there, then you have an author asking his readers to believe that the the relationship between the two of them is as good as he says it is, where instead he's showing the the reader exactly how it develops and why it becomes so important, so that we actually have a better chance to to feel those emotions along with the characters. Um, I th- I think it was you, Cody, who said earlier that that it became very clear when when Pinchon became a father. Um, and how that changed some of his character writing. And that is exactly the sort of investment that he's making here. You know, something that he probably has a better idea of how to relate would affect how he writes relationships between characters just in general. And, you know, we talked about it in the end of Crying About 49, but us doing this show and like talking to one another about these parts of the book and kind of digging deeper into it does give me a, a, a deeper appreciation for what's going on because it it gives you an opportunity to discuss exactly what he's he's doing and it's why i think books like this are are better enjoyed in you know whether it be a book club or just a a friendly discussion like on the reddit forums or or wherever you want to you want to go i think you'll your mileage through these scenes will vary based upon you know the own investment that you give into them and and there's no better way to invest in into what you're reading than by discussing it with other people yeah i completely agree to kind of springboard off of this this sidebar of the discussion, I guess and it's not really sidebar, but um, the what I keep coming back to, and I'm sorry for anyone who thinks this is an obnoxious theme for me to keep returning to, is looking at the the three big novels as a continuum of of not just uh, pre-modern modernist and postmodern literature, but also about culture, is that you can complain about Gravity's Rainbow's two-dimensional cartoon characters, but if you don't understand how the ways that the the, the scenes like on, was it 185, where Mason is talking about um, Susanna and Rebecca leaving the planet as caused by the meteors or the, the comets. Mm, yeah, 187, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, what you have there is somebody beginning to alienate themselves from their own reality. You have somebody who's looking at this grander thing, these comets, and applying the human scale uh, things to the grander, whereas in Gravity's Rainbow and uh, throughout the evolution of Against the Day as a novel from the beginning to the end, you see more and more of the grand being applied to the people, both in the, the literal and paranoid sense of there's a conspiracy controlling individuals, but there is also a, a general reverse, reversal of that kind of relation. And so in a sense, and this might be giving, you know, 32-year-old Gravity's Rainbow right in Pynchon too much credit. But you could interpret it as saying, well, we are in a world where we are all just caricatures. We are all just random marbles with a certain paint job made by the factory, and we're all in this pinball machine bouncing off of each other. And so, sure, the book isn't realistic in terms of humanity, but that's because no longer does humanity rule our world. And on the opposite end of things, prior to modernity, you have Mason and Dixon, where 
sure, these guys are scientifically minded and they are uh, part of what becomes industry, but they have no investment in it. They don't want any part of that. And they are people. They are whole humans who are the actors rather than the acted upon, even if they are still being maneuvered by forces greater than themselves. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that was, that was great. I, I've nothing to add to that. That's very accurate. <laughs> so uh, there's there wasn't a whole lot of uh, extremely funny parts in, in these chapters, but I did find a, f a few um, myself that I wanted to bring up. Uh, we talked about the cheese rolling contest and, and its kind of general absurdity, but... I also I highlighted the um, the reaction that that Mason had when the wheel was coming at him, and this is terrible on an audio format because I you know I can't no one can see me doing this, but he does the thing where you put your hands in front of your face uh, as though that's going to actually do something when this massive object is coming at you, but that's just human instinct is to just do that and go no, um, this, and that part just had me really. <laughs> laughing pretty hard yeah um, my niece is at that stage where she she covers her eyes and thinks that she's hidden which i so i think it's pretty funny that mason like yeah. regressed to childhood like that one of, one of the things that I, I i really appreciate that it's a small bit of humor it is the paragraph where in the in the tourist trap morneval goes off talking about ear addressed as ear like it's a name for an ear and I don't know, maybe it's just because I was listening to the audiobook when I thought of this. But it's pretty funny to imagine, given that he almost certainly has like a, a London accent. You mm. know, he's gonna pronounce here like it's ear. Yeah. And so the whole time reading through that paragraph, you know, there there's you could try to make some broad allegory or something out of the, the replacing ear with here. Um but it is also just deeply funny to have this guy being like ear may look small and brine soaked to some but i can tell you she's one voracious vessel that's a deeply funny thing for people to be t talking about seriously it's, yeah. a, it's a severed ear yeah what would you call her nose uh so the other thing i wanted to bring up i i have been on more of a mission to kind of really examine specific names when they catch my eye um, in his books. And the name Delicia Qual seemed weirdly, uh, weirdly purposeful. And I looked into it and I, I'm, I may be stretching a bit here, but you know, obviously Delicia sounds like a little bit like delicious. Um, and then the word qual I had never heard before. It turns out it means curd or rennet, which um, I think most people know what curd is. But rennet is a, uh, a bacterial enzyme that's used in the manufacturing of cheese. So if you if you want to be generous with it, it could be that her name means deliciously cheesy, which kind of fits her character because you know when they she's garishly dressed when they meet. Um, that I think, what was it? He, he says that her dress was, or her gown was at least an order of magnitude too riotous for any casual visit in these parts. <laughs> um, and then she really does a good job of selling herself when she says, I was brought up in the Anglican faith and with enough spirits to drink, am said to be a merry companion. Um, so I, her, that brief little bit of her character just had me 
giggling. And I, I don't know if I'm really reaching too far with the name, but you know, it, it seems a little too uh, purposeful to be in there like that and not have a specific meaning behind it. Similar to that. I didn't like note it down just in case it would be too much of a reach, but Nick Mornival, the, the last name Mornival is, is a hand that you can have in poker, but it can also mean yeah. a, group, a group of four or a group of four individuals in particular. So there was a part of me that was wondering, is he trying to insinuate that this man has like schizophrenia or multiple personality disorders? Like he is, he is actually a group of four individuals inhabiting this one body named Nick. Um, that, that was another name from this section that, that I found particularly interesting. Yeah. I looked into his too and I, all I could find was the, the cards thing. So I'm, I'm glad that you found that little bit extra on there. Cause that, that one seemed a little bit too purposeful as well. Um, Will Luke, did y'all have any other, um, uh, funny parts that you wanted to bring up? No, they've already been covered. Yeah, all I can think of are just little little bits of dialogue that mm-hmm. strike me as funny but aren't really worth mentioning. Yeah, there's and there's a lot of those, just the little yeah. one-liners and offhanded jokes. Um, let's go ahead and do quotes. Um, I'm always going to ask Will if you want to start first because we have a <laughs> tendency to steal yours, so I will offer that here. Well, as per usual, I will refuse, but I appreciate <laughs> it nonetheless. Uh, Kate, Luke, either you want to go first? Um, Mine is on page 186 of the edition that I'm reading where it says, Day into night, rain into starry heavens, when Rebecca crept from their bed to join Mason upon the astronomer's couch. Bradley's wraith stood over them, a lonely, weakly illuminated picture of himself, compelled to watch them, to observe, yet wishing he did not have to hover so, crying, no louder than a whisper, I am a quadrant mounted upon a wall. I must be ever fiduciary, sent into error neither by heat nor by cold, that with which the stars themselves are correlated, firmly set enough for the aberration of light, but too coarse to read, with any penetration, the winds of desire. He was insanely in love with his young wife, and yet had no way to estimate where the end of it might lie. I mean, that quote has a lot going on in it relationally from the standpoint of not just Mason's relationship to to Rebecca, but also, as we were talking about, to this relationship with this father figure that he had and this sort of interesting dynamic between the four of them as as they lived together. And it, as we were talking about, like so much in these five chapters are so relationally heavy and so... Um, like soaked in in an intimacy that is rare for for Pinchon's novels that I just had to spotlight that particular section because of what it it really represents it's this man who is insanely in love with his young wife as he says but he's also constantly sort of reminded of this man that he also does have some love for and had this very intimate connection with and still imagines this man sort of in in their life kind of living with them still to this day and then you have it reversed where the the ghost of him also is talking about how he wants more than anything else to be there again and yet he can't he's forced to be in this position where he has to to watch and be this sort of silent figure just constantly yearning for the days when he was a part of this kind of 
this kind of I'll I'll use the word mournful because there's four of them. Um, <laughs> this this mournful of the four of them and the 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 deep bonds that those four people must have shared with one another. It's it's such a I don't want to say blink and you'll miss it, but if you don't kind of go back through and read it again and kind of examine the the two halves of that dynamic in that quote, I feel like they're the impact of it might be lessened a bit. It was it was something that after I read it, I had to just go back through and read that section again and it 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 really represents what he's doing in this early portion of the book um in, in such a compact way yeah that was a really really beautiful se- uh, section of the of that chapter luke what uh what quote did you have uh so mine's on 179 uh till now he has never properly understood the phrase calling into a void having imagined it said by wives of husbands or teachers of students. Um, I love that whole paragraph. It starts off with comparing the ear to Helen of Troy, which is just a really, mm-hmm. I'm not, it seems obvious in a lot of ways to, to compare the two, you know, like they both launched these big wars. Uh, I'm not sure if I would have, as an author, would have made that connection though, although it seems obvious. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was in education for like eight years or something. Um, until kind of recently and uh especially as a substitute teacher the whole calling into a void thing you know like there was times when i would take attendance and i got to the point where if people were talking during attendance i would just let them talk and i would just do attendance anyway and if you missed your name or you know if you didn't say you were here even though you were here it's, it's not it's not my fucking problem um i got very you know kind of kind of um what's the word uh like uh jaded i guess um but i don't know you know i just love that calling to avoid teachers of students and that whole paragraph is really good it also kind of reveals um because the word preapic uh comes up in in terms of the ear which does make it clear that pension was for whatever reason uh comparing the ear to uh, a penis which is just kind of a weird a weird comparison, but that does that there was some kind of foreshadowing of that, and then it just becomes clear in that paragraph. I just love that whole paragraph yeah that was that one was a really good one. That makes me think if you you mentioned the the experience of of being a substitute and and calling into the void like that, my wife is a she's a school librarian now, but she's been a teacher for uh, a long time and and has had many similar <laughs> interactions with students like that. And it also made me think of um, uh, Solenoid by Marcea Carterescu, um that I've been reading. And, and that book deals a lot with the relationship between teachers and students and that kind of like, um, I've just mentally checked out I, concept for a lot of teachers that just can't because the students don't give a shit. Um, so that made me think of that as well. But um yeah, that I, that was a great uh, paragraph as well, I thought. Um, Will, I know you wanted to go last. So mine is, I mentioned it earlier, it's the the, the conversation or the, the statement that uh, Mason's dad wanted to have said to Mason. Um, and it's on page 205 and 206. It says, What happens to men sometimes, his father wants to tell Charlie, is that one day, all at once, they'll understand how much they love their children, as absolutely as a child gives away its own love, and the terrible terms that come with that, and it proves too much to bear, and they'll not want it, any of it, and back away in fear, 
And that's how these miserable situations arise, in particular between fathers and sons. The father too afraid, the child too innocent. Yet if he could but survive the first onrush of fear and be blessed with enough time to think, he might find a way through, hoping Charlie might have looked at him and asked, are you and I finding a way through? And we talked about how fraught um, Mason's relationship with his dad was, and, and that particular bit of, di- of, of dialogue that his father wanted to have, like I said earlier, is so indicative of his understanding that he was emotionally distant from, from his child and that he recognized it, but it was just not something that he had any, any way of, of controlling, at least not easily. Um, and it's, it's heartbreaking to, to see that, to see that he understands the impact that he's had on his son and, and the impact that it's had on his son's kids. Um, and to just to know that he knows and can't or won't change is is just heartbreaking on on such a profound level. Yeah, if you hadn't uh, made it clear earlier that that was going to be your choice, I would I would have absolutely gone with it because it is a it's an incredibly phrased uh, summary of one of you know it's just hard that's that's one of those hard parts of life is trying to break through those those shells that we build for ourselves and it's just yeah. beautiful well mine mine is going to be much less serious than all of yours <laughs> um, yes um 178 all this while the ear reposes in its pickling jar of swedish lead crystal as if being withheld from time's appetite for some destiny obscure to all presently tis noted by mason he hopes an effect of the light that somehow the year has been aglow for a while too with all it seems as he watches to come to attention to gain muscular tone to grow indeed quite firm and in its saline bath erect it is listening quickly mason grips himself by the head attempting to forestall panic and this is just a, a really it's a perfectly descriptive scene to me because it it, it paints a horrible picture of sentiment because I've never seen a disembodied ear in a jar full of salt water before. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't. Nope. And uh, still, I can perfectly imagine the idea of like a slight shiver and like a stretching. And it's just the worst. Just you're describing it right there is making me uncomfortable. <laughs> It's it's truly a, uh, a horrible image, and it it's really impressive. <laughs> now imagine Will staring at you intently as he brings right. you through a museum prior <laughs> to showing you that. In a and small as I, room. As I strum the same eight chords from a Velvet Underground song. <laughs> <laughs> with, with increasing and decreasing tempo. Yeah. Exactly. Just to add to that, to that tension. Um... So what was y'all's uh, most penchant part of these chapters? I mentioned it earlier, but it's just the whole the absurdity of the cheese rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine was the, the discussion of the 11 days. Um, we do get more about it later on, uh, which is one of, my, one of my favorite parts of the book later on. Um, but it does strike me as a very penchant thing to focus on. Uh, as the, the pension wiki points out that these five chapters have some similarities with against the day in terms of their obsession with time. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, it just people arguing and getting all mad about that type of thing is just a very penchant thing to focus on, I think. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, I mentioned mine earlier, just the the um, the all, all the passages that deal with relationships uh, really highlight how much Pinchon grew as a writer between uh, his early work and, and this later work. And um, it's and, and that's nothing against what he did early, because I think his early writing is is absolutely terrific as well. I just think that he he grew as a as a writer in the sense that he got better at doing what he was already really good at and then improved on all of it. Um, and his, and his characterizations and his, and his descriptions of their relationships and, and helping the reader to really flesh out these characters more and more, um, just was a huge part of what makes specifically his later works like, like this and against the day, uh, really connect with me more. My choice is actually very directly linked to that. It's uh, it's the section, it's the it's the whole section surrounding that paragraph you chose for your quote, Cody. It's the essentially the book ending of, in far, in fact, far from the ogre troll his son makes him out to be, to the end of the chapter. Um, it's I mean it it really is basically Pinchon inhabiting the perspective of Charles Senior the seeing this beautiful it, it's not quite scientific but this this framework of viewing the world which is not at all dissimilar from masons from the mason that we're familiar with um but it is just perfectly described the slight differences in their characters and the slight hang-ups in his father's means of communication that guarantee that while charles senior sees bread as a microcosm and as uh, synonymous with the human spirit. Um, what, what Charlie sees, as a young man at least, is the horrible lack of humanity in the world. And I just think it, the way that he walks the reader through these opposing perspectives without changing the metaphor, without really shifting anything except for wh whether you're thinking about it like Charles the Elder or the Younger um, is very artful. It's, it's, it's something that I have a hard time believing anyone else could do. Yeah. Um, so we got uh, another email from Brett, who um, I, we've mentioned before a few times. Brett is... Um, Brett Beeble, I think I'm hope I, Brett. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Um, he has a book uh, coming out next year. Uh, it's a Mason and Dixon companion, and he has um, taken time to help us along with with understanding a lot of the historical goings on um, from our previous episodes. So he's basically emailing us after he hears each episode and kind of clarifying some things and, and pointing out some things, which has uh, been tremendously helpful. Um, and he did send us something along uh, today that I'm uh, that Kate will read in just a second. I did want to mention that once we wrap up part one, we are going to do a a wrap up episode uh, that just kind of covers all of part one. And Brett has agreed to come on for that episode, um, so he'll join us uh, when we record that, and he'll be able to provide all kinds of uh, great insight into 
um, what we've read so far, and I think that'll add a lot to our uh, to our discussion. And so we, I think, are all looking forward to having him on and, and being able to talk with him about that. Um, but Kate, if you want to go ahead and, and read what he sent us, please. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one, I have nothing on Christopher Smart and Wanda Tanaski. I'm pretty convinced Pinchon had nothing, or wasn't personally involved with anyway, the Tanaski letters. But it certainly seems plausible Pinchon would make references to pseudonymous publication and the questions surrounding authorship, especially in this book. In terms of masculine and smart, I think the detail that stood out most to me was that smart was committed to an asylum in 1757. Smart was interested in science, but wrote very intense religious poetry. Masculine has an interest in the spiritual side of things. He's irreverent, as he never lets us forget, and, of course, dabbles with astrology. Incidentally, those natal charts they cast are astrologically accurate. But I think he fears where that might lead. Smart might be a cautionary tale. Also, anything having to do with madness takes on added significance on St. Helena, so that's most of my focus with Smart. 2. Clocks. Masculine was super invested in determining longitude by using lunar observations. Calculating longitude at sea was vital. If you couldn't do it, you might die. See the Skilly Naval Disaster, Masculine's drink order on St. Helena is a direct reference to the commander in that case, Sir Cloudsley Chevelle. If you could determine longitude, you could also move goods more efficiently. So there were business benefits too. Of course, doing lunar observations aboard ship required an astronomer, or a very practiced naval cadet, and was very labor-intensive. Clocks provided an easier way. If you knew you could keep accurate time at sea, you could know what time it was in London. If you knew that, you could use the sun to determine your position much more easily. Was Masculine devoted to lunars because he was skeptical of machines doing the work for people? Maybe. He'd have a point. Technology changes us, and maybe we'd be better off doing the hard work ourselves. He might also, though, simply have wanted to keep the power in the hands of the astronomers, as opposed to just giving sailors clocks. He's represented as rather elitist throughout the text. Thank you, Brett, for sending that. Um, I the the clocks thing really added a lot for me. That was a really cool thing to learn about. I, I kind of it makes sense that you would have to know. You know, obviously, knowing longitude helps with uh, with traveling. But um, what really was fascinating about this was the fact that the natal charge charts were astrologically accurate that's absolutely insane to think about yeah and to to brett's point about technology changing us and um specifically this this idea of was masculine devoted to lunars because he was skeptical of machines doing the work for people that really kind of gets to the point that luke made a couple episodes ago about the the kind of near cyberpunk underlying themes and some of the some of the things Mm -hmm. going on where that is sort of a not a literal merging of of man and machine like you'd see in William Gibson or anything like that, but certainly a- approaching something like that. Where now we're we're offloading the work of people to to machines or technology. Yeah, more of a, I guess like a philosophical cyberpunk in a way. Yeah. All right. Well, that will do it for these chapters. Um, we thank everyone for joining us and for listening. And uh, if you have any questions or comments or anything else, uh, please send us an email, mappingthezonepod at gmail.com. Next week, we're going to be doing the last five chapters of part one, chapters 21 through 25. And then after that, uh, as I said, we'll be doing a wrap-up episode on all of of part one uh, with Brett. So uh, hopefully um, everyone will be able to join and, and give some insight on their thoughts up to this point. 
Um, and we will see you all next week. Bye. See y'all. See you next week. <laughs>